0: On today's episode of Inside Startup Investing, you are going to be hearing from Alex Skolnick, who's a co-founder and CEO of Liquid Piston. I first met Alec probably almost five years ago now, and they've been at it ever since, making progress every year, continuing to raise capital, and really growing the business. The biggest thing that I think you're going to hear in this episode that stuck out to me is just, one, how hard it is, what they're doing. So they are literally creating a new type of internal combustion engine that is far superior and more efficient to any combustion engine we've really ever used in vehicles and military equipment, so on and so forth. Um, It's a really innovative technology that came out of uh, several MIT graduates, and they've been at it for years, and it's finally starting to pay off. Uh, Just to give you a sense, I don't think people realize sometimes how hard it can be to start up. But these folks over the past many, many years had raised about $30 million um, in grants and actual revenue sources from the military. But it's really hard to get funding from the military, right? You have to prove a lot of things to convince the military to work with you. Uh, And in the last couple of months alone, they've signed over $35 million worth of contracts. So when we talk about progress and and that compounding effect of building a startup and seeing the progress come together, sometimes it takes a long time to suddenly see those overnight successes, right? You may have heard of things like the 10-year overnight success. Well, I think these guys are kind of on that path, and that's what so excites me about the business, is they have put in years and years of R&D, hard work, grinding it out, doing these grants with the military, and now they're starting to see those inflection points where they're really starting to grow the business. Um, really interesting story. Always great to see a team that's fighting through and making progress year over year over year. And, uh, and it's also just a a really fascinating story that I think is worth listening into. So with that, let's kick it off. Always like to start with, tell us a little bit about yourself, your background, and then, uh, if we get the one-liner on uh, Liquid Piston, that would be great. Absolutely.
1: So, I'm, I'm Alex Skolnick. I'm the co-founder and CEO here at Liquid Piston. I have kind of a technical background uh, with uh, uh, degrees in neuroscience and computer science and math. I did my PhD at MIT in artificial intelligence with a focus on motion planning, um, so really, really you know, modeling and optimization. And you might wonder what on earth any of that has to do with combustion engines. You know, I, I like math, I like optimization. Um, and when I was a PhD student, I was helping my, my father with some of his ideas, so my, my father, Nick is a PhD in physics. Uh, he actually immigrated here from, uh, the Ukraine back in the seventies. And, uh, he's a physicist by, by training and in, in practice, he was really a, like an innovation consultant. So he was always bothered by the inefficiency of today's engines. Wondering why does your car only convert like 15% of the energy and fuel into useful mechanical work? You know, from a physics perspective, why can't we do better than that? And when we really kind of like look at the math and, and the, the fundamentals of how engines operate, we see that there is a lot of room for improvement there. Right. So we went back to really the fundamentals and innovated there. Uh, we developed a new kind of thermodynamic cycle, something that hasn't changed in over 150 years. And we embody that with a new kind of engine. It's a rotary engine that we call the X engine. And you know the takeaway is this is a very simple device. It's about 5 to 10 times smaller and lighter than today's piston diesel engines that everybody's familiar with. Uh, it's uh, also 30% more efficient with the new thermodynamic cycle. So the the military has taken a keen interest in this technology. They have helped uh, fund it. We we've had the opportunity now to work with DARPA and the Army and Air Force. Um, and actually, since that first raise that you mentioned, you know, we we've signed and uh, we, we we've signed 65 million dollars in contracts with the U.S. DoD since since that first raise.
0: Let's talk about those contracts a little bit. How do those work? Have you already kind of run through all of those contracts or are you working through them in the years to come?
1: Yeah, great, great question. So um, we started working with DARPA, which is the Defense Advanced Research Project Agency. They're kind of famous for inventing things like the internet, um, mm-hmm. GPS technology like we know it, you know, self-driving cars. So they, they really push forward technologies, uh, stuff that Obviously, can benefit the warfighter, but a lot of their technologies end up spilling into the commercial sector. So we we worked on um, three projects with them, and then we sort of graduated from DARPA and uh, began more work with the Army and and the Air Force. Uh, it's kind of unique that we you know we have so much interest from such a diverse set of players in the DoD. The DoD is really cool because they are a end customer. Um, and also they can help to fund the development, right? So they, they can do both pieces. You know, within the DOD, just kind of everywhere you look, they have needs for more power and more energy, and the solutions that they have available today, they're they're not adequate for what they're trying to do and what they need to do uh, in, in, in order to sustain defense. So, you know, it's it's just, we're solving a really immediate and painful problem that they have. And with regards to the contracts, um, you know, most of the contracts, about fifty-five million dollars has come in in the last two years, um, and we just we just announced a new contract. You know, thirty-five million of that fifty-five was just signed a few weeks ago, um, and, and that'll be funding us through twenty twenty-six. So basically, we turned uh, profitable starting in twenty twenty-two, and we expect to be pretty close to break even. We're not trying to make a large profit on these contracts, um, but they are helping to fund you know, a, a significant portion of the development, at least for the DOD applications through 2026.
0: And those DOD applications, is that revenue or is that equity investments? No, the, the DOD doesn't do equity
1: investments. So we are working with the 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 venture arm of the air force but this is a a contract in the end uh so really it's um you know it's a contract with milestones we have kind of monthly deliverables and so far you know in in um in executing all these programs we have a hundred percent success rate in fulfilling our milestones so you know that the, the government has increasing confidence that we can deliver what we say we're going to deliver and that's why each set of contracts we've had has been greater than, than, than the last, right? Um,
0: so, yeah. Now you mentioned um, that you're solving an immediate need and pain point that they have. Can you talk about what that immediate need is, what the pain point really is?
1: Yeah, if you look at the power and energy solutions that we have today, right? We've got gasoline engines which are really inefficient and also for the DOD and within aerospace, uh, you know, this is the single largest consumer of oil on the planet, right? The, the, the U.S. Department of Defense is the single largest consumer. Now they have a mandate. They would like everything to run on one fuel for logistical purposes. Uh, fuel and water, you know, the, the, the logistics of, of delivering fuel and water to the front line represented about half of our casualties in Iraq and Afghanistan. And we see this in all sorts of conflicts. You see it in, in Ukraine for example, but um, you know fuel makes a really good target, right? And it's really hard. it can take up to 100 gallons to push one gallon to the front line. So it's really expensive, but it's also measured in in lives, uh, literally half our casualties. So anything we can do to reduce the logistical burden, reduce the size and weight of our generators uh to provide more power to our vehicles to provide additional auxiliary power um you know i'll I'll give you just a couple of examples we were working with the the howitzer group in the army and you know these are basically very large muskets right this is a technology that's like hundreds of years old but increasingly they, they need more and more computational power for very sophisticated control algorithms that, that help to put the, 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 the ballistic right where it needs to go. Um, and they don't have power for that, right. And they don't want to carry a diesel generator because it's, uh, it's too big. It's too heavy. It could displace up to a third of the ammunition that they're able to carry. And it's, it's noisy and whiny. So right now they just idle their trucks and you know, they're siphoning just a little bit of power to idle the trucks. They're burning about two gallons of, of fuel per hour, every hour. And it's, it's just not a, a good, it's not a win-win for anybody, right? The, these trucks are noisy. They're burning a lot of fuel. So they would like to have a small portable genset just to, to uh, provide power for, for the gun. That's one example of, of a contract that we worked on with the Army. And literally every stone we, we look at in the Army, every application that you look at, they need more more power, and you know, especially things that fly like drones. And you look at what's happening in the conflict in Ukraine. You know, they're they're calling it the first drone war, right? This is what warfare is going to be looking like in the future, fortunately or not. It's it's drones against drones, um, and power and energy is fundamentally limiting to things that fly, right? If you if you have a larger engine, you can carry less fuel, or you can carry less payload. And you know that that's that's a a big problem for them.
0: Now the technology that you have, can you put these engines in nearly anything? Can you put it in a generator and a vehicle and a and a drone as well?
1: Yeah, it's a scalable technology. So much like a piston engine, you can have like a multi-cylinder piston. You can scale the bore and the and the length of of uh, the the stroke. Uh, we have similar knobs for. Our technology and it's it's equally versatile as a piston. So all of the the knobs that work for piston engines, you know, you can go carbureted all the way to uh, common rail di- direct injection. Right, we can do the same uh, with with our engine. We we literally had a, a YouTuber come to our shop a month ago and he uh, converted our engine with a carburetor to run on vodka of all things. Okay, and on the extreme, the other extreme, we're running common rail diesel in in our rotary. So, um, you know, we can run naturally aspirated, supercharged, we can, we can scale the rotor up, we can do multiple rotors. Um, so really we can serve engine markets between five horsepower up to a thousand horsepower. We're starting with defense applications and aerospace applications for a, for a startup company, you know, this, this is a good place for us to start because. Number one, there, there's a, there's a customer that's willing to help pay for development. Right. And we're, we're kind of following the, the money here. Um, but also it's a low volume application and, uh, emissions exempt and both of that, you know, low volume means it's, it's high price or relatively price insensitive. So it's an easier market for us to penetrate into compared to, for example, the, the automotive market, I get questions about this all the time. Why don't we just go to straight to the automotive market? Well, it can take 20 years to penetrate the automotive market with a good technology. So we we are very purposefully kind of targeting a different niche application, Uh, but you're 100% correct that the technology can be scaled and adapted for pretty much any place where you use engines today and even small turbines.
0: Yeah, there's certainly exceptionally high barriers entry in terms of actually being able to get into the right products and, and be in market in something like what you're doing i'd love to understand a little bit more um for instance you know if you have this 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 new kind of combustible engine that's more efficient if it means going into a drone or it means going into a military vehicle or even a generator i mean there are producers of the generators and the drones and the vehicles so is the military now going to them and saying hey we're working with these more efficient engine creators you need to input their engine into your solution? How does, how does it actually work where your engine gets placed into items that they're using?
1: Yeah. Great, great questions. So, um, let's talk about both directions here in the drone area. You know, there, there's simply put, there are no heavy fuel solutions in the power classes that are of interest. So right now the the most widely fielded, uh, drone by the U S army is called the shadow. UAV and it's produced by Textron. Uh, currently, it also uses a Wankel rotary engine, ironically, but it's not able to run on heavy fuel. So that's a key challenge. Right now, they have to carry two fuels to the front line and they, they, they're really, they're mandating a single fuel, but uh, then they make an exemption because they, there simply is no technology that's able to provide heavy fuel capability. So for them, it's a it's a game changer, and as soon as that technology becomes available, you know I, I think that they're going to then mandate it. So they're not going to necessarily mandate that everybody puts in a liquid piston engine, but as soon as they mandate that everything now for real has to be heavy fueled, including all of our drones, um, there's going to be very little choice out there uh, other than our technology. So that that's on one hand. On the other hand, you know we we literally. A, a lot of folks in the government are putting us uh, directly in touch with a lot of these integrators. And you know our business model, we are not going to be a high volume uh, producer of engines necessarily. we We might produce engines in in low volumes initially for a few initial applications. And drones is a good one where you know you you might make a few hundred per per year. Um, but really, we're a business to business company. We're an IP company, we have 82 patents on the technology um, that, that are either granted or, or pending, and we provide engineering services. So we figure out what is the best engine and power solution, right? A lot of what we're doing is hybrid electric, um, and it's really adapting the technology for specific use cases. And our customers include the DOD, but now they're also in- including commercial entities. So these defense integrators, for example, or, or non-defense uh, integrators, but aircraft manufacturers might pay us to develop a, a power solution for their application. And then the idea would be ultimately to license the technology uh, into production to, to serve them.
0: Business model-wise, just to make sure we, we fully understand, can you talk about the handful of ways in which you can make money and commercialize your technology? Yeah, there are several prongs. So uh, right now we're in the phase
1: of kind of pretty much most of our revenue comes from uh, government contracts. So the, these are engineering services uh, oriented for kind of research and development for government purposes, and we're we're using this and kind of reinvesting every every dollar of contract revenue that we get is basically helping to develop the technology and demonstrate it in in various use cases for the DoD. Uh, moving past that, we we move into engineering services for uh, commercial companies. So uh, a lot of people don't don't know this, but when Ford, for example, or or pretty much any of the automotive companies come out with a new engine, they hire one of a handful of consultancies that handle most of the development work of of an engine. Or you know they they might split it fifty fifty, but uh, FEV, IAV, Ricardo, AVL. You know those four companies probably do 90% of the automotive piston engine development work, and these are billion-dollar companies, and all they do is provide engineering services. And you know, it, it it's expensive and time-consuming to develop a new, a new engine. So it, in th- that, that's our second revenue prong is providing these engineering services, and we can put teams of engineers around different applications and have it uh, funded by the customer. And then the third piece of this is licensing. So once the technology is fully fielded and we, we, we can transition it to higher volume uh, producers, you know, there's a lot of companies out there that are really good at making things, including engines. They already have the manufacturing, the quality controls, the sales, the service, the distribution channels, all of these pieces that we as a small uh, innovative company, we don't have those pieces necessarily. So you can think of us like the technology arm and, and those incumbents are the... Um, the, 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 players that kind of have those really expensive capital, uh, capital, the expensive pieces. Um, but what we're left with is licensing, which is a very high profit business model. So those are kind of the three revenue streams. And the cool thing about that is that we don't have to, uh, you know, we don't have to have a high volume fielded application to be profitable. And in fact, we reached profitability already last year, uh, with, with this business model.
0: There is within kind of the military segment, and then as you think beyond that, one, what is the next expansionary category? Where do you go from there, and help us understand just how big an opportunity could exist out there for that?
1: So the military, just to give you a sense, you know, we're we're talking initially about drones and also uh, portable generators, right? And right now, the army has about thirty thousand small gensets uh, below five kilowatts. That are fielded, that are really outdated. Okay, and when we look at the the history of contracts around generators, uh, a single contract can be worth about one to four hundred million dollars. So that might be relatively small for a large incumbent, but for a for a young company like ours, it, it's a sizable contract. And you know, it's a, it would be a multi year contract. And you know, that's for for each power class, y- you would get. Uh, something like that. so that that's um, that that would be a successful kind of transition in, into something like the the army. Now, moving past that, you know it's a 400 billion dollar market for internal combustion engines. I'm not even counting when you go a little bit bigger to include you know hybrid propulsion systems and generators, which we also are are very active in in that area. And then we can go even a little bit broader into things like APUs, auxiliary power units. Uh, we're finding today, and, and just for the for the viewers out there, um, you know, when you have larger vehicles, a lot of them have some type of engine or or a large turbine for propulsion, but then they will also have a secondary engine, like a smaller engine, that's used for non-propulsive functions. Uh, if you look at an aircraft, for example, you know a- out the tail cone, th- there's a little engine sitting in the tail cone, and that provides power to start the main engines, and it provides power for air conditioning and electricity when you're sitting on the ground. For example, uh, helicopters have those tanks, have those. Uh, e- even like police vehicles will will often, you know, a lot of these vehicles that sit for a long time and idle, but they need power while they idle, or or hotel comfort will will have these secondary engines. So um, you know that that's an area that really excites me. It's it's not something that I've really paid a lot of attention to before. But th- these are applications that total up to hundreds of millions of dollars. Um, and so yeah, it's a four hundred billion dollar market for engines overall. About three hundred billion is in the automotive and trucking space, which we can get to eventually. Uh, but there's a hundred billion of other markets out there. That's just enormous and kind of mind blowing everybody thinks that you know with electrification uh, that all this is going away but in reality uh, that's not quite the case right First of all with the expansion of the middle class in India and China we're actually still seeing that the internal combustion engine market is still growing right now and beyond that you know our technology in particular is really good at coupling with electrification so if you think about, like electrifying a vehicle, for example. you know the, the greatest feature of a electric car is regenerative braking, right? It takes a lot of energy to accelerate your vehicle, and when you hit the brakes, if you throw all that away with heat, that would, which is what standard brakes do, that's incredibly wasteful in terms of energy. So instead, if you use the, the motor in reverse, it becomes a generator, and it, it can put that energy back into a battery that's a, that's great that's a win win for everybody but the flip side of that is if we try to use the battery for everything right something like a tesla carries a 1200 pound battery it requires enormous resources to manufacture and and produce it has this just giant environmental footprint that we've been kind of neglecting uh, and also the government has kind of labeled the mpge right the mile per gallon equivalent but they only look at the energy starting at the battery and then going into the wheels, they completely neglect how the electrons got into the battery. And the reality is that we burn a lot of fossil fuel uh, at, at a power plant. And then that it gets distributed um, you know, through through the through our networks, but we just don't have enough of these power generation plants and, and the distribution networks are, are too fragile, right? Four gas stations, if you look at the energy that flows through four gas stations per unit of time, that's power. Four gas stations would have to be replaced with a small nuclear power plant to deliver the same amount of power uh, per unit of time. If you you just wanna try to switch to electric vehicles uh, overnight, it would be really, really challenging. So think of us like a replacement for a really big battery. Instead of a really big battery, we can use a small battery. You still get all the benefits of electric. Maybe you get 30, 40 miles of range. So even, you know, typically you're going to be driving electrically. But the cases where you need to go more than 30 miles, you've got the onboard generator, it's efficient. It can use a variety of fuels, including sustainable fuels, which can be very low carbon or even zero carbon. For example, hydrogen, you know, the the main output of hydrogen would be water. And that is something that we've demonstrated the ability to run on. So we can complement the battery and really help to accelerate the electrification of vehicles. I, I get that question a lot of hey, are, are we going to be competing with, with electrification? We actually think that we can be an enabler for electrification.
0: You mentioned that um, you know, you're you're going after kind of this massive market, four hundred billion dollars, three hundred is in kind of that car segment and it takes just Forever to enter that space. Um, So, even if we focus in on kind of the hundred billion, you know, you've been at this for a good long while with liquid piston. And I know there's early investors who have been in for for a good while. When you think about kind of timeline to really scaling this up and thinking about exit opportunity, you know, how do you think about that? Where do you see that going? Yeah,
1: those are great questions. Um, So, we are in kind of advanced stages of, of delivering prototypes to the army, right? Like advanced prototypes. So what that means is by the end of next year, we want to give the army both engine and generated prototypes that they can start to qualify for fielding in, in use. So we're getting, we're getting a lot closer to a fielded uh, application. You know, my, my best estimate, and this is just an estimate, would be about two to three years towards something that can be uh, fielded. And again, our our business strategy is to be very kind of uh, targeted and uh, go after initially a low volume, kind of a high price, low volume application, get our footing there. And then uh, we we have a a strategy to scale rapidly by applying engineering services. We, We can have relatively small, you know, focused teams enter a lot of markets quickly with a large number of partners. And really leverage partnerships to accelerate that that adoption. So
0: I, I think we're well on our way. And and just to take one step back, I, I'd love for you to explain, you know, some of the processes and things you've had to go through to get here. Because commercializing really inventive technology, whether it be in the military or in vehicles and all of these things, like we said, is a really slow, really challenging process. So it's not like you're just sitting there, you know, twiddling your thumbs. I, I know that you guys are investing work really hard to make this happen. Talk yep. about some of those steps that led to getting thirty-five of the sixty five million you've ever gotten from the military happening within the last few months. What did you have to do to get to this point? Oh,
1: there, there's just a tremendous amount of work and, and we have really a tremendous team uh behind us and you know, the the employee team is fantastic and then we have an army of consultants and contractors, uh, that, you know, so it's a, it's a whole army here that is what's making this, uh, happen. Um, and, and there's a lot that goes on behind the scenes. You know, first of all, we were, um, in pursuit of a new thermodynamic cycle. So talk about a moonshot project initially, right? This was a science project in, in its early days of hey, how do we fundamentally change the operation of an engine? And there was a lot of iteration. Uh, you know, we, we went through four different cycle architectures before converging on on the X engine. And even today, you know, we have a, a Skunkworks department, kind of a, an internal department that my father leads, that is uh, working on stuff that's five years out, right? So we have this constant pipeline of innovation, and we've gotten really good at designing and, and building and testing things. Uh, now we have a machine shop in house. We've got, you know, five full-time machinists and a lot of CNC capability, you know, during COVID that became a real challenge for us was getting, getting parts on time, uh, from suppliers. So we, we literally just bit the bullet and and had to invest in that. Uh, at, at some point, you know, we, we foresaw a bottleneck in testing and we invested in, in a complete testing infrastructure. And now I'm seeing that again. So we're, we're basically going to be tripling the size of our uh, testing uh, team and department. Uh, in the last year, we've been adding a lot of specialists in different fields. So we we have uh, uh, seven PhDs, actually eight PhDs on the team. We have a PhD in thermal sciences. We have a machine learning uh, PhD. We have a material science PhD. So there's all these different fields that are kind of coming together to, to make this work and financing has been a crucial element for us, right? So these DOD contracts, you know, what you see in the news as a $35 million contract, it, it's probably two to three years in the making, right? There, there's a lot of people involved on our side, a lot of people on the government side that are, are making that, that happen.
0: Um, vehicle segment that we were talking about, um, just because I feel like probably get one of the best answers you get out there. Um, You know, end of the day, your technology should very much make it way more possible to get very good mileage, you know, per gallon of gas and help with this whole movement towards using less fossil fuels. Mm. So from an outsider's perspective, you go, why would they not want to use a technology like this? Like, I don't get it. Can you talk about some of the reasons why it takes so long? Is it safety driven? Is it OEM supply chain driven? Is it just fear of change? Like what is it that's preventing the adoption of something like this in that segment?
1: Yeah, it's a it's a combination of a lot of what you said. Uh you know, we we've spoken to almost every car company out there. Uh and and, and by the way, when I say that we're not pursuing automotive it's it's really that it's not something that we are like actively pursuing as our number one opportunity we're we're still having a lot of conversations out there we're still under uh uh, different kinds of agreements with with different car companies the only car company that i really haven't spoke to that i've tried to speak to is mazda ironically they they have the Wankel rotary engine and they they say you know liquid piston you're not a you're not a Wankel rotary we don't want to hear it (laughs) so they they won't even talk to me um but what we find there, unfortunately, is really kind of an, an NIH, right, not invented here uh, syndrome. Mm-hmm. And it, it really wasn't until a player like Tesla came along and shook things up that you start to see any kind of movement in, in the automotive world. So it, it's just a a, a challenging, uh, very conservative space to to really drive change. Mm-hmm.
0: For those who are listening in, who are interested, maybe kind of on the line, the last question I always love to ask here is, is, what's kind of your final pitch to folks of why they might want to invest right now? Look, th- this is a new technology that is
1: fundamentally disrupting the internal combustion engine as we know it. You know, it's, it's a technology that, uh, th- it's a field that's ripe for disruption. It's begging for disruption. And as hard as anybody's tried to kill the engine in the past, you know, it, it's a simple, cheap device that works and it's really hard to kill the the benefits the, the the change in this field have been incremental for a very long time. We're offering something that is a, a step change right like truly disrupt, disrupting this field so uh, I, I think it's an enormous market opportunity. We've got 15,000 investors that have invested over 40 million dollars at this point so you know a lot of folks believe in what we're doing. Uh, the government traction is only building with 65 million in contracts so there's just a lot of proof points in in you know kind of showing that this is is going to work um so you know we 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 appreciate the support of all of our investors and you know we we couldn't do this without them so we
0: thanks so much for listening to the show If you want to use the same tools I do to find amazing founders like the ones I have on the show to power your investment decisions, you can head on over to kingscrowd.com backslash startups to try out our edge toolkit.